You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 146. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. It is valuable to me, and I hope I do not squander it. On the show today... I want to take a look at Carl Jung again and possibly some Nietzsche. It's hard to avoid discussing Nietzsche when one discusses Carl Jung as one influenced the other. But before I get there, I wanted to ask you a special favor today. We have recently learned now, uh, after months of praying and searching for answers for my 12-year-old's medical um struggles that the MRI revealed two weeks ago, he has both a cyst on his pituitary gland and a tumor on his pituitary gland. And as you can probably imagine, a tumor and a cyst on a 12-year-old's pituitary gland is never a good thing. And so we are now scheduled for an appointment on April 6th of 2023. It's March 9th when I record this, so almost a month from now, we have to wait for a consult with a neurosurgeon because our neurologist, his neurologist says that she cannot make a definitive statement, diagnosis, prognosis without first consulting with a neurosurgeon because the size of the tumor is what she calls being in the gray area. It is large enough to cause concern, but not so large as to be considered an immediate emergency or threat. But uh, we believe a consequence of this tumor's growth on his pituitary has what has led to him going through a significant growth spurt in the past nine to ten months, his blackout and seizures in November of last year, his consistently dangerously low blood pressure, and overall sense of disorientation and pain. And if you are a parent, you can appreciate the fear and pain and grief and worry and anger and frustration and anxiety that such a discovery puts on one. And I can say for myself that it is very much like having a truck parked on your chest all day, every day. And I'm grateful for what I already do to treat my anxiety and how I take care of myself and how we as a family function that allows us to suffer this and to bear it and to have faith that in the end he will be healed and that we will continue on and he will grow to adulthood and enjoy a very long and blessed life. That's our hope. And yet... As anyone knows who has struggled, especially with the knowledge that you are not in control of the situation, you are not in control of the outcomes, it can be terrifying at times and overwhelming because all of life and all of your attention and all of your energy and focus can be reduced to something about the size of a thumbnail or smaller. And that is a devastating reality. We are not in control. 
We are never in control. We don't understand what is going on. We like to fool ourselves and deceive each other in the kind of social contract of deception that we are in control, that we have a pretty good idea of what's going on. But we don't. And it's at times like these, especially when it's a child or someone that we love, and we can't do what we want to do to heal them, to cure them, to relieve their suffering and their pain. It's at these moments that we are exposed, and what we are exposed as is weak and naked and vulnerable. And as I said, not in control, not understanding the ins and outs, if anything, about really what's going on and why. And so if you are of a faith that you pray, or you would like to pray for my son, his name is Hoshea, H-O-S-H-E-A, he is 12. And as I said, he has a cyst and a tumor on his pituitary gland, which has led to a whole bunch of medical issues for him. And so we have spent quite a lot of time on the road driving back and forth to the children's hospital to try and narrow down and isolate the source. And now we have. And so now that we know the source of his medical problems, it's time to do something about it. So all that being said, again, going back to Carl Jung today, there is a question that I have had for a number of years now, but especially the last three years since the virus of unknown origin captivated all of our attention. And that is, why do so many people seem to suffer from mental illness today? And why do certain segments of the population go to such great lengths to not only normalize mental illness, but hold it up as a virtue to be imitated? And I think Jung in particular has something to say to that because it's something that he addressed in his own generation, just as Nietzsche did in his. And so when we look at not only where we live at locally, but rather the world the last three years in particular, as I said, what do we see? What do we observe? Push aside the noise. Close your ears to all the chatter on the internet, on YouTube, on social media, uh, what's coming from the mass media. If we just observe the last three years, what do we see? Well, I think one thing that's obvious is an endless series of crises. It is simply one crisis after another, sometimes within the span of two or three days, it seems. There are no ends anymore to the numbers of crises that the mass media and social media, and YouTube, and the internet latches onto and pushes, almost as if we are being herded from one crisis to another, mindlessly consuming the information, reposting it on our social media feeds. I'm just as guilty as anybody of doing this. And yet, how much can we really trust anymore, whether it is a positive or a negative story in our estimation? On the one hand, we can say, for example, in present, that everyone who deleted my account, shadow banned me, 
all those who DM'd me and texted me and emailed me and called me on the phone in the last three years to attack me and criticize me and damn me for my stance against the pandemic, against lockdowns, against the vaccine, against the boosters, against the masking, against the information, against the experts. Now all of those folks that they defended have pivoted. And now they are saying exactly what I've been saying the past three years. And on the one hand, those same people that attacked and criticized and those same fact checkers that shadow banned my accounts or deleted my accounts and suspended me, now they're all saying what I've been saying for three years. And they don't want to talk about why they pivoted or what's changed. They don't want to apologize. They don't want to repent. And yet, as tempting as it would be for me, and I have done this, by the way, I'm not saying I'm above this. I am not that virtuous. But rather than crow about this or even celebrate the fact that people are now saying, okay, we accept that the lab leak in Wuhan was the source of COVID-19 getting out and that it was probably a bioweapon and it was probably released by China and therefore China is the big baddie. Okay, on the surface you would think that I would be happy about that, that I would be standing on top of my car, screaming at the top of my lungs, I was right, I was right, I was right. However, while many, many people celebrate this so-called or supposed victory that they're now admitting what we've been saying for three years, I don't actually see it as a victory at all. I see it as yet another distraction. And the distraction is this is that all of the information, all of the paperwork that I have been sent, that I have read, the people that I know who are former IC folks, people that have access to insiders, the people who leak the information, doctors, epidemiologists, virologists, the people that I consult with who share things with me that make me promise to not share them with anybody else, all of that information, and even the information that's out there in the public that you can find with a simple search of probably Brave or DuckDuckGo, even though DuckDuckGo is highly censored now too. But the Wuhan leak is a distraction from the truth. Because the truth is that the bioweapon that they call COVID-19, it was created and developed in a bioweapons lab in eastern Ukraine and then it was transported to Wuhan, and then it was released. They are distracting us from the bioweapons labs in Ukraine to keep the war drums beating and to make sure that the will of the population is on the side of the warmongers. And therefore, as much as I would like to celebrate the fact that the experts and my friends, family, and neighbors who condemned me the last three years are now acknowledging, yes, it came from a lab leak in Wuhan, and it was probably the Chinese who released it. We're not looking at Anthony Fauci. We're not looking at the Gates Foundation. We're not looking at Ukrainian bioweapons labs. We're not looking at the Biden family's involvement in both Chinese and Ukrainian uh, matters relating to this. Instead, we're being told that the evil communist Chinese released this into the world. It's all their fault. It's just another distraction. And yet it's just one example of a crisis, 
And then there are all the train derailments and chemical explosions in the past two weeks. More than two dozen in the United States alone. Of course, the most well-covered is East Palestine, Ohio. What they don't tell you is how close East Palestine is to Youngstown or Pittsburgh, or that the Ohio River is nearby and it provides 10% of the drinking water for the United States. They don't tell you that. They don't tell you about the chemical explosions in Florida, Texas, South Carolina, and other places. Why? Why do they focus on one story? That is always when I start to ask questions. Why are we so focused on this one thing when there are all of these other things that are of equal or greater importance? What do they not want us to see? And so what happens then? when it is simply crisis after crisis after crisis. And then the crises are used to create other crises or to distract us from the real crises. What happens then when, because there's nothing but war and rumors of war, to quote Jesus, more and more people seem to be losing their minds seem to be suffering from a neuroses of our times, as Carl Jung called it. Well, I'm going to go with Jung here and posit one possible, and this is also Nietzsche's argument. I've read about it on the show before too, but Carl Jung says this in The Structure and Dynamics of the Psyche. Jung writes, The lack of meaning in life is a soul sickness whose full extent and import our age has not yet begun to comprehend. Let me read that again. The lack of meaning in life is a soul sickness. Stop right there. Lack of meaning. You have no God. You never look up. Questions of metaphysics, as I've talked about on the show before, don't come up. Your life is essentially eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you will die. Basic hedonism. What happens? Well, according to Jung, it creates a soul sickness. Because how many people even think they have a soul today? How many people today actually take serious that they are a mind, a body, and a soul? And that those three parts make one whole person. Think about what would happen to you if you acknowledged two out of the three things that make your life worth living. It would be like you were walking around with an amputated foot. You know something's missing. You feel that something's missing. You walk with a limp. But since you never look down, you can never quite figure out and isolate what it is that is bothering you. What it is that makes you feel not whole. What is it that causes you to limp along? Well, in the same way that we ignore and or deny that we have a soul, suke, Nefesh in Hebrew, the breath of life, the wind of God. To deny that is to deny one-third of what makes you, you, at least according to every culture throughout all of human history up until the Enlightenment, with some, you know, exceptions here and there. But by and large, there's not a culture that you will find historically that denies the existence of the breath of life, the soul, the nefesh, the suke, the geist. And so for Jung, then, that's our starting point. Why so much neuroses? 
Why is there just this constant drumbeat of crisis after crisis after crisis that creates even more neurotic and mentally ill people? Because our lives, all of our lives, lack meaning. And because they lack meaning, we are all suffering from the same sickness. That is, our soul has been polluted. Our soul has been infected by a disease. We are all afflicted with a terrible illness of the soul. And as you know, it's the full extent of this and how this will affect us, we have not yet begun to comprehend and probably will not be able to for generations to come, if at all, considering the direction that we're going. But if we go back then to Nietzsche in the 19th century, Nietzsche called this nihilism, or as he said, the radical repudiation of meaning in the will to power. It is the radical repudiation of meaning. That's what nihilism is. Nihilism is a person and or a group of people saying, none of this means anything. There is no higher purpose. There is no higher meaning. There is no higher power. Everything that you see, taste, touch, and feel, and hear, and smell, that's all there is. Whatever you can grasp with your senses, that's all there is. There is no God. There is no higher meaning to life. There is no objective morality or ethics. There is no hierarchy that is implicit. No. All of that stuff is made up. It's all social constructs. Life is meaningless. Everything is an accident. Well, Nietzsche observed that this is essentially the root of nihilism. That is the belief in nothing. And believing in nothing, according to Nietzsche, makes one, not surprisingly, nothing. Sorry about that. The paint in my office is still very pungent. And as a consequence, my allergy to paint causes my nose to run. I swear, just once I'd like to do a podcast without a runny nose or being stuffed up or having a tight chest or having a brain that feels like a box of broken glass. One time, you know, I fear that's God's way of giving me a thorn in my flesh to keep me humble <laughs> so I don't get too ahead of myself. And so Nietzsche asks, though, is this loss of meaning, is this death of God the result of the rejection of the Christian worldview and the rise of a scientific, reductionist, mechanistic worldview? Was the death of God the most important and monumental event that has happened in the past 500 years since the Reformation of the Church? Or maybe the last 300 years since the Industrial Revolution? You name your significant event. So Kaufman, Walter Kaufman, who I've talked about, he was the translator and foremost acknowledged editor of Nietzsche's works, wrote, Nietzsche felt the agony, the suffering, and the misery of a godless world so intensely at a time when others were yet blind to its tremendous consequence that he was able to experience in advance, as it were, the fate of a coming generation. Isn't this interesting? I've listened to, I don't even, I can't count anymore how many scholars I've listened to lecture on Nietzsche, especially on the death of God to get their take. None of them are Christians, and therefore their bias against Christianity, in my opinion, lends itself to them blaming Christianity for 
all of the bad things that happened up to Nietzsche saying God is dead. And even as they note that Nietzsche is lamenting the death of God, they still see it as a positive, that somehow the rejection of God and the Christian worldview freed Western civilization from these terrible shackles of morality and ethics and tradition. Everything that is wrong with the world, they will often summarize by saying, Christianity, that's the problem. And then once we put off the Christian worldview, we were all free. I mean, that's why they called it the Enlightenment. We're coming out of the dark age of the Christian worldview. And now we're free. Well, the thing is, as Nietzsche notes, is that the scientific worldview is incredibly reductive. And as a consequence, it has lent itself again to nihilism, which I've talked about in previous episodes when we read Nietzsche and his critique of science. Nietzsche felt the agony and the suffering and the misery of a godless world so intensely. That's according to Kaufman, his foremost translator and editor. Nietzsche wasn't celebrating the death of God. He wasn't celebrating the rise of science and reductionist worldviews. He was actually in agony about it. And even though he himself renounced his Christian faith and declared that there is no God in a way of speaking, it just goes to show that, for Nietzsche anyways, even though he had done that, he had renounced God and his faith, he was still in agony, and he suffered over it, and he was miserable about this godless world. Because as he said, and Kaufman picks up this note, this thread, we're not going to know for quite some time the consequences of what we have done. And yet, at the very least, Nietzsche recognized, we set off an extremely large explosion. And that's why it's going to take us so long to really sift through the debris and, and take a toll, count up the consequences of our decision to pull the pin on this one. And so what happens? Well, as Viktor Frankl says, ever more people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. Viktor Frankl, ever more people have the means to live, but we don't have anything to live for. That's present-day America in a nutshell, the United States today in a nutshell. We all have the means to live, but we don't have anything to live for. So we invent things to live for that have no substance. They have no permanence, no sticking power. Here today, gone tomorrow, what's the next crises? What's the next fad? What's the next celebrity scandal? What's the next gossip piece? What's the next movie or TV show that's gone woke that is going to upset the fans. We live in an outrage culture, a cancel culture, a very angry, activistic culture because we have nothing to live for. And so it may seem on the surface that everybody has something that they're living for, some idea that they are embracing or pursuing or living for, whether it be stoicism or alpha maleness or sigma maleness or you name it, BLM, Antifa, leftist politics, right-wing politics, libertarianism, anarchism. Everybody's got something they claim gives their life meaning. But that's kind of the point, is that everybody nowadays seems to be looking for something that they can latch on to and then say, this is what gives my life meanings, meanings, meaning. 
I read Jordan Peterson. I follow David Goggins. I pay attention to Jocko. I do this. I do that. Along with all of these other people who are looking for something to belong to and a group to be a part of. Why? Because no one goes to church anymore. And I mean that in the broadest possible sense. Nobody believes in God. Nobody believes in objective reality. Nobody thinks it's necessary to commune with other people. No one goes to church. That's what the church exists for, for fellowship. To gather together with other folks of faith, other people of faith, to pray, to sing, to worship, to hear meditations on God's word. All of it's very strange and very exotic nowadays. Sometimes it can seem impenetrable because it is so strange and exotic to us. The language is strange and some of it, much of it is archaic. And the prayers are strange and use words that we don't use in everyday speech. It wasn't so long ago that that wasn't the case. Within the past 30 years even. But now it is exotic. It is strange to go into a church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whatever and see all of these people joining together around a common theme, a common cause, a common belief. And whether you criticize it or embrace it, the fact of the matter is we are all looking for meaning. We are all looking for something to attach ourselves to, some group that we can be a part of, some tribe, some gang, some organization. Why? Because we have the means to live, but we don't have anything to live for. Our lives lack meaning. I see this with Christians all the time, and maybe you see it within your religion or within your social groups. So-called Christians come to church, and they're hopeless. They are struggling with grief and anxiety about today and yesterday and tomorrow. They're emotional wrecks. They're living paycheck to paycheck. And yet when I ask, have you prayed? They say no. Would you like to come and talk? And just get it out. And they say, no, they don't want to burden me or bother me. I ask if there's anything that I can pray for, for them. And they'll give me some brief answer. It is a consequence of the current cultural zeitgeist. That most people that I know are isolated, lonely, secluded people. And this too contributes to their neuroses, their sense that nothing matters and that nothing has meaning. It's why people live their entire life online, on Discord, on Twitch, on Twitter, wherever they may find themselves and whatever they attach themselves to. I've talked about this before, but I think it's an important point, at least for me anecdotally, that demonstrates this. I have over 700,000 downloads between the two podcasts that I do. I have two, two books. Both were bestsellers on Amazon, pre-sale and then day of release. I'm writing my third book. Everyone that hears about it, it's about the theology of addiction. A lot of excitement, a lot of encouragement. Thank you. I create nonstop, as I've talked about. Drawing, painting, writing, poems, writing prose, writing sermons, writing the book, writing articles that I'm paid to write two articles a month for one of the organizations that I contract out to. 
I compose music. My entire life is dedicated to the creative process now. And yet, despite that, despite the thousands of followers that I have on social media and the thousands of people that I follow on social media, and despite all of the interaction that I have with people on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, when I post something that I've created, if I get 40 likes, that's remarkable because it's usually 12 to 20 out of thousands of people, out of the hundreds of thousands of downloads and the thousands and tens of thousands of people that have read my book and my articles, of all the people that encourage and condemn me via email, text, DMs, only 12 to 20 can normally be bothered to say, I appreciate your effort. What is that? What is the root of that? They see it. I see their posts. They see my posts. I know this. I believe the root is that. We are all isolated. We're all just swiping up or we're all swiping left to right. But we're not really engaged with what we're seeing or what we're reading. We see it. We say, oh, I like that. Click. And we move on. We don't meditate on it. We don't think over it. We don't reach out and contact that person. We simply hit the like, write a little comment below, and move on with our life. And even writing a comment, I think, nowadays is a remarkable feat because most people can't even be bothered to do that. And I believe it, that the root is we're all alone. And the more time we spend on social media and the more time we spend on the internet, the more time we spend in front of our screens simulating real life and simulating real relationships and simulating real engagement, the more isolated we feel and the more secluded we become. Because it's virtual reality, and the word virtual means fake. It means not real. And virtual reality is just that. It's not real. It's simulated. And we are at the whim of the algorithms to a large extent. And to those who write the codes, and to those who determine which of us get our accounts shut down for 90 days, or our accounts suspended, or shadow banned, or boosted... But I think this constant chasing after attention is a consequence of feeling so alone. And of course, the last three years, <coughs> excuse me, have just exaggerated this beyond, con, con, just beyond anything we can compare it to previously. And so people have the means to live, but they just don't know what to live for. There's no meaning in their life. And so what happens? They develop a hatred of the existing society. Sound familiar? They have an apocalyptic sense of an ending and the need for some kind of worthy cause to give meaning to one's life. There we go. That's from Redemption by War, Ronald Stromberg. We have a hatred of the existing society. Why? Because we have the means to live. Again, it's the meme of the Antifa rebel, anarchist, breaking shop windows, burning down cities, tweeting about tearing down capitalism on their iPhone with their $150 shoes, sitting there with their Starbucks and their, their cell phone, tweeting about, we're tearing down the patriarchy. Why do they do that? Well, one, it's obviously a sign that they have the means to live. They can afford an iPhone and Starbucks and $150 boots, but they don't have anything to live for. And so they hate the existing society. 
not because of what it offers them. They're using all of the accoutrements, all the artifacts of modern society, smartphone, Starbucks cup, expensive designer clothing, a cause they can belong to and tweet about and get likes. But they hate society. Why? They don't know. They are the children of a godless society that lacks morals, ethics, meaning, purpose, goals. That is, they are a child without a future. And they are angry. As Tyler Durden says in Fight Club, right, we are the bastard children of history and we are pissed off. And so they hate existing society while embracing the accoutrements of existing society. And even though they are more than happy to exist within this system and to not become a, um, a refugee, so to speak, an expatriated American and move to somewhere like Iran or North Korea or even Saudi Arabia or Singapore for that matter, go ahead and try and live there. Try and riot there. Go ahead and smash the patriarchy in a place like Singapore <laughs> or Iran. And then tell me how oppressive and racist and sexist and bigoted and oppressive the United States is. They have the means to live, but they have nothing to live for. And therefore they hate, like spoiled children hate having to eat their vegetables. They hate being forced to exist in a society that has no purpose for them, no reason for them to be here. This is why... In, in a society that has embraced nihilism, abortion and euthanasia, that's just a byproduct. The more a culture embraces nothingness and pushes the message that we are all accidents and that there really is no ultimate meaning or purpose to our lives and that there really is nothing to live for other than to just live, of course you're going to see abortions go up. Of course you're going to see the elderly euthanized. Of course you're going to see the death penalty spread out more liberally amongst people and broadened so that more and more people are executed. We see this with the pharmaceutical companies and the military-industrial complex. Do you honestly think that any of those shareholders care about how many people have been killed as a consequence of the boosters or of us supplying weapons and munitions and money to Ukraine to wage a proxy war? Do you think anybody at Raytheon cares about how many Ukrainians have been killed by their own government and by the Russians? Of course not. That's why we just moved the theater of war from Afghanistan to Ukraine. And when we're done with Ukraine, we'll go to other some third world country and we'll exploit them. And we'll be told that they're the good guys and they're in favor of freedom and democracy. And that's why we're there. And that's why we need to help them against the big bad insert evil empire here. Well, I hate to tell you folks, but the United States is a fascist state. Corporations work with the government and collude with the government to control the population. That's a fact. You don't even have to be a conspiracy nut to see that. It's on the news every night. Just watch some celebrity or comedian or athlete or someone criticize the pharmaceutical companies or the president or the war, as Woody Harrelson did on SNL. Within hours, thousands, not dozens, not hundreds, thousands of media outlets around the world condemned him for his conspiracy theorist nut rant 
pothead celebrity conspiracy theorist says. That was the headline. Almost as if they had it prepared beforehand. Thousands. Thousands. Why? Because they're all owned by the same two multinational conglomerates. We live in a fascist state. It's a soft kind of totalitarianism. But make no mistake about it, the United States is not a beacon of democracy. We ceased to be a democracy a long time ago. We're not even a constitutional republic. As my friend likes to say, laws are for stupid people and the poor. Which, again, empirically, is true. If you want to appeal to the law in the state of Minnesota when you're in court for shooting someone that broke into your house at 2 o'clock in the morning, I hate to break it to you, but again, statistically speaking, the person who shot the intruder is more likely to go to jail than the intruder. That's justice in the state of Minnesota. Do the wealthy have to fight for their life? Do the wealthy have to defend themselves against home intruders? Of course not. Do the wealthy go to court? No, of course not. The laws are for the stupid and the poor. Corporations run our lives. That's why East Palestine happened. That's why we can have over a dozen chemical explosions in two weeks in this country and no one pays attention. No one cares. That's why they can steal the election in front of our face and we're told we're insane for observing why are these voting precincts being closed to the public? Why are all of these people who are supposed to be there observing the whole process of tabulating votes being kicked out in the middle of the night? Why are all of the videos from all of the security footage deleted? Why is MS-13 running the state of Arizona? And why do they own the attorney general? Hmm. On and on the questions go. And it makes you wonder, at least it makes me wonder, if the news today is mostly propaganda and what children are taught in government-run schools, public schools, are taught, and this includes private schools too, public schools aren't, you know, aren't the only place. If what they're being taught is more indoctrination and propaganda in order to be brainwashed into obedience, why don't we think that about the rest of history? Do we think that the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Romans or any empire didn't set out to write a narrative of history that benefits them? Of course, we know this because it's a cliche, right? That history goes to the victors. It's the the person who wins gets to write the history of it. That's why Carthage and Hannibal, we don't hear a lot about them. Why? Because they lost. And it's only, you know, it's only Hannibal's greatness that we know anything about Carthage after Rome sacked it and burned it to the ground. But when you start to study alternative history, for example, like yesterday, I went down the rabbit hole of the Montana megaliths. And there are these structures in Montana up in the mountains that are the same walls of the same construction, the same design and architecture as walls in Peru and in places like Turkey and in places like Australia and Alberta, Canada, actually. Went down that rabbit hole too. There are these walls built from the same size stones fitted together in the exact same way all over the world. And yet we're taught that these are aberrations. They have nothing in common with each other. It's a coincidence. Or in the case of the Montana megaliths, 
that's just naturally occurring. That's just wind and water. That's just erosion that makes the rocks appear perfectly square and fitted together so that a piece of paper can't be slid between them. And the fact that they're perfectly straight, that's also just a coincidence. And my point is whether you believe it or not or accept it or not as a theory or a fact, we were taught to not think about it as an option to the history that we were taught, that there was nobody here before Europeans got here. And that the people that were here before the Europeans got here were a bunch of primitive savages living in tents and walking around hunting buffalo and living off the land. And they were kind of like hippies and they're just, you know, just want to be free and roam around and love each other. And we'll ignore the slavery and the human sacrifice and the raping and pillaging that they did to each other because that's what people do throughout all of history. We won't talk about that. We won't talk about the megalithic structures. We won't talk about the complicated architecture. We won't talk about the pre-existing structures that were here before the Europeans got here. We won't talk about the Vikings, the Norse people, and when they got to Newfoundland, did they stay? Did they build settlements? Did they move further inland? In fact, if you think about it, and this is really interesting to me just as a thought experiment, all of Western history is conceived of a movement from east to west. But what if it was from west to east? What if? What if the Phoenicians came from the Celts? What if the Celts were a group of people that predate even the Hebrews? Because Celtic language and Hebraic language is very similar, actually. And the definitions of words and the pronunciation of words are very similar. Is it a coincidence? Possible. Is there an etymological relationship between the two? It suggests that that is true. And my point is just, why are we not open to even having the conversation? Why are we immediately shutting down the possibility that the history that we have been taught and the way in which it has been reported may be, as just, may be just as spurious as modern news is today and as we are taught history today? If you think about, oh, I don't know, Ruby Ridge, for example, or Waco or September 11th, or the Kennedy assassination, or the swine flu, or the avian flu, AIDS, and now COVID-19, if you think of just a handful of events in the past, let's say 50 or 60 years, and events that we know for a fact were fabricated, or lied about, or just the details were altered to suit some group's narrative of the events. If we just put that on the table, and ask, and ask, ask the question, is it possible that most of what we are taught in school about history is a lie and that the people teaching it to us don't know because they're indoctrinated too. They were raised and taught in the same system that we're a part of. And maybe it only takes two or three generations for us to forget about where those buildings came from or why every major city in the United States is built on top of another city. And what are all those tunnels underneath all these major cities? Because they weren't, they weren't just sewer tunnels. They weren't just built as sewer tunnels. They were something first and then were later used as sewer tunnels. Why can't we have that conversation? Why are we not free to ask the question and just speculate? Like, maybe there's more to this. Maybe there's 
more meaning to this than we were first led to believe or, or taught. And maybe it's important as we age and mature to ask the question, is everything that I was taught in fourth grade or in my sophomore year of high school or my freshman year of college, is that really all there is? Is that the be-all, end-all of knowledge on this subject? Or is that simply a perspective? For example, another one. I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling now, so you can tune out if you like. But I did say your time and your attention is valuable to me, and I don't want to waste it. So I'm just dropping some thought bombs on you for your enjoyment. We know the Gregorian calendar is inaccurate. We know this. It's, it's broadly admitted that the Gregorian calendar, calendar, I can't speak, is inaccurate. That's why there's this constant push for a 13-month calendar to replace it. But if the Gregorian calendar is inaccurate, then why don't we just go back to the previous calendar that was widely used before the Gregorian calendar was floated? What would change? Okay, we have a 13th month, and now what? <laughs> what, does it, what does it actually change? We can all adjust our schedules. This weekend is spring forward, daylight savings time. We still adhere to that ridiculous tradition, even though the original reason for that is a lie. It wasn't just so farmers could, you know, harvest and plant. That's a lie. It was a fabrication used to justify the time changes. Look into the history of that if you want. But the point is that we can adapt if we want to. We can change if we want to. All that we need is for everybody on TV, all those thousands of journalists, in quotation marks, who vilified Woody Harrelson for making a joke about the pharmaceutical industry, to go on the news every day for uh, 30 days, according to certain experiments, and to tell us 13 months is the true calendar. It's the lunar calendar, the, the solar calendar. It's more accurate. People used it for thousands of years. The Gregorian calendar is flawed. We can even throw in like an anti-Christian message in there too to really, you know, ramp up people's sympathy to the 13-month calendar. It would be about a month before everybody was essentially on board. And within a year or two, that would be that. But we don't even have that conversation. I was watching a, a, a piece this morning about how there's a very well-known theory that I didn't know about, so, but that the Romans added a thousand years to history just to basically kind of like shoot some steroids into Roman history and Roman hegemony. And if that's true, that the Romans just added a thousand years randomly to basically say like, no, we've been around a lot longer, we're a lot bigger, and we're a greater empire than Greece ever was, or Babylon, or Persia, or whatever. We're it. We're the best of the best of the best. If that's true, that the Romans added a thousand years just randomly, and that all of the Roman historians that were of note were told, do this, and they did, how would we know? unless we went back to the original Roman historians, which their writings are available to us, actually, some of them, go back to the original Roman historians and ask, where did you come up with this? Like, where did you come up with your measurement of time? We take it for granted that something happened 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago just because of archaeological evidence or carbon dating, which is also incredibly flawed, and other means of measuring history. But we never ask, like, how do we calibrate these tools? And are they ob as objective as we are told they are? Or is it a very reductionist view of time 
and we've all just been indoctrinated in this reductionist view of time, and therefore we buy into it, unquestioningly, ignorantly, and as a consequence, it's not 2023. I mean, I have Jewish friends who laugh at that, because of course, Orthodox Jews keep time differently than we do. For Orthodox Jews, it's not 2023. It's a whole nother year. But all of it just to say, because we have the means to live doesn't mean that we're living as well as we could or should or must. And that maybe the lack of meaning comes from the fact that we no longer question our existence. We simply do what we're told and we believe what we're told. And this creates an, an intense sense of loneliness, isolation, and the fact that we're not allowed to think means we're not allowed to create. Because in order to create, you have to think outside the lines. You have to think outside the edges of the, of the canvas. And you have to say, well, what's, what's just off the edge of the page? What's just beyond the edge of this map? Why can't we have this conversation about this thing that I'm observing that looks like a wall? Looks like a giant wall, actually. And you're telling me that this is just a random accident of wind and, and rain and erosion, but those look fitted together and there's scoop marks in these and there's these little knotty, knobby things sticking out from the rock that as if they were carved out of the rock very purposely. We have all of these depressions in certain rocks that certainly look like they were used for something in particular. This wall is incredibly straight and old. And you're telling me that neither one of these is possible within the time frame that you're dating it to. Well, maybe you're wrong. And maybe you need to adjust your measurements and you need to adjust your hypotheses or your conclusions. Because the evidence that I'm staring at suggests there were people here before the Native Americans got here. And the people that were here, they seem like they were mm, pretty smart, actually and had tools to do stuff like this. And we have to ask the question, if each one of these rocks is several tons, um, how did they get 20 feet up off the ground on top of that other set of 20, 30, 40 ton rocks? What is going on? But we don't have that conversation. And the people that do are considered nuts, which is a whole nother subcategory as to why is, it, why is it that people that want to ask why and people that can embrace quote-unquote alternative history or alternative methods or alternative treatments are immediately marginalized and immediately vilified or demonized and immediately mocked and cursed? Why do you think that is? Some of them deserve it for sure. Some of that are completely off their rocker. Absolutely, we can admit that. But that's true of any group. That's true of, of any gathering. You're going to have a few people who are a little bit too far off the edge of the map. But does that negate then everyone else who's researching or investigating or walking around saying, hey, look at this with me. What do you think? Does that immediately negate them? Or is it simply a consequence of the nihilistic society we live in and the neuroses that so many of us suffer from. Again, chronic anxiety and depression are like the number one affliction, the number one diagnosis in the world right now. Like, what the hell? What's happening that so many people are suffering from chronic anxiety and or depression? Like, why are we not having this conversation? It's right there in front of our face. Everyone I talk to about my anxiety says, 
Oh, could you say more about that? Because I have I I suffer from the same thing. Oh, by the way, thank you again uh, to everybody who has reacted so positively to the mushroom episode. Again, I I really do hope that what I presented there and what I read to you proves beneficial. Again, your mileage may vary because each person is different, but give it three months, give it six months before you make up your mind and see if it doesn't improve your overall health and well-being. And play around with it and go down the rabbit hole yourself and do the research for yourself and engage on YouTube with the folks that legitimately are passionate about mushrooms and medicinal mushrooms and the folks who grow and harvest medicinal mushrooms and what they have to say. Because yeah, on YouTube, there's a lot of woo stuff about mushrooms for sure. And I even like listening to them sometimes just to get their personal experience of psychedelic mushrooms, for example. But most of the folks that I follow on YouTube, for example, who are really down with medicinal mushrooms, they've got a lot of good stuff to present and a lot of useful stuff I think that is helpful. And like I say, Everything that we need to care for our body, our mind, and our soul, God put on earth when he created it, which means all of the medicines that we need, all of the nutrients and vitamins, all the things that we need for our good, God put there for us. And so walking around in the woods and looking at something like a turkey tail mushroom, which in Japan is used to treat cancer, by the way, suggests that again, when it comes to medicines, we have been rendered completely blind to the options. I'm not suggesting we never go to a doctor. I'm not suggesting that we don't take pharmaceutical medications. I'm not saying that the technologies that I pray to God save my son's life aren't useful, beneficial, and necessary. What I'm saying is, why can't we have the conversation about alternative, quote-unquote alternative, which for thousands of years was just medicine. Now we call it alternative because, again, who controls the narrative? The pharmaceutical companies. So the very fact that you can eat a mayataki mushroom or a reishi mushroom, the mushroom of immortality, as we heard in our readings on that episode, like we can't even talk about that stuff. And if I talk about it with other people, they're like, mushrooms, really? So you just basically hallucinate all day long? That's how you deal with your anxiety? It's like, no, that's like one subcategory of mushrooms. There's literally tens of thousands of uh, defined mushrooms with extensive research. And then there's millions of mushrooms that we haven't even dug into yet as far as what they do and don't do. But to say, and you notice again, this is such a great example. The first thing that people think when I tell them that I take mushrooms is that I'm taking psilocybin um, or mascara mushrooms and I'm just tripping balls all day long, which is ridiculous because if I was, I wouldn't be able to function at all or have a complete psychotic break from reality. But yet, who is it that, taught us or, you know, kind of planted that earwig that mushrooms are magic mushrooms. That's the only kind of mushroom there is. And then the kinds that you buy at the store. Why is that? Why is it that chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, hen of the woods, reishi, mayataki, cordyceps, and on and on and on. Why, why are we never talking about these things? Well, it's because we're not allowed to, and we're told not to. And when we do, we're made fun of. Oh, you mean magic mushrooms? Oh, you mean the mushrooms where you you trip? It's like, no, man, no. Even people I know who are sympathetic, who trust me, that's their first response. Very interesting. Very interesting. Again, ask, what are we not looking at? Why are we not allowed to talk about this? 
And so ever more people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. So then what happens? Anxiety disorder, depression, neuroses, widespread. How widespread? Global. So Ian, I think it's Ian McGilchrist, the matter with things. I think that's the thing. He writes that happiness is about the present moment, independent of other moments, whereas meaning links events across time, thus integrating past, present, and future. This is why in communist societies, you'll hear the constant drumbeat that we have to forget about the past. We have to throw off the chains of tradition. All that matters is what's happening right now in the present, what's new. That's why they always target the kids. Kids are all about novelty. They're all about what's new and exciting because they're young and they're immature and they haven't experienced a lot of life and therefore everything is exciting and everything's new. And old stuff, ugh, like chores and eating your vegetables and going to church on Sunday and having to go to grandma's for Thanksgiving, ugh, all that old-fashioned tradition stuff. Let's, let's get rid of old-fashioned traditions like God and family and the tribe and clan and the good traditions like birthdays and holidays and having a cup of coffee with your spouse in the morning or going for a walk in the morning with your kids or gardening or singing with other musicians or getting together to read a book together or go to a poetry reading. Let's get rid of all those traditions. Ugh, all those old stupid traditions. Let's just do what's new and what's awesome and shiny and diarrhea Christmas lights right now. And therefore, our happiness is about right now, which is why, for example, it just came to mind actually reading that, it's why internet porn addiction is epidemic amongst people, not just men, women too. Actually, statistically, um, women are either just above men in porn addiction or just below men in porn addiction, depending on which research you read. But it's not a one-sided, one-gender kind of um, problem. It's, it, it includes both. And why is that? Well, one, you don't have to go to the trouble of talking to someone and asking them out on a date and courting them and going through all of the formalities that build up to physical intimacy, such as developing emotional and intellectual intimacy first. No. In fact, I don't even have to hook up. I don't have to go on Tinder. I don't have to hook up. I can just go online, type in whatever my fantasy is, choose from thousands or millions of possibilities, zero in on what I like most, and then masturbate to that. And in three minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, done. And I can move on with life. Why? Instant gratification. The idealized man, the idealized woman, the idealized situation for physical simulated intimacy, which porn isn't intimate in any way, shape, or form. The fact that we think it simulates intimacy is absurd in and of itself. It's a violent act. And as a consequence, everything in our life is like that. We have to microwave everything. I've talked about this endlessly the last 20 years even. My, my children's friends think that it's amazing that my children know how to cook and bake for themselves. Amazing. <laughs> Why? Because most people don't even cook anymore. They just go to the store, buy a box or a bag of something, throw it in a plate or a bowl, throw it in the microwave and pull it out and eat it. 
the reason so many people don't care about what the ingredients in the booster shots are is because most people don't even know what's in the ingredients are for what they're putting in their face on a daily basis. What's in the food you eat? What's in the thing that you're drinking? What's, what's coming out of the TV or going into your earbuds? Like what kind of nutritive value does any of that have? Or are you just feeding garbage into your brain and into your body and into your soul day after day after day? You don't know, you don't care because there's no meaning to life. And therefore you exist in, in an eternal present. Orwell writes about this in 1984. Huxley writes about this with Soma. You just exist in this eternal present, independent of all the other eternal present moments. So think about this too then. If we take this into consideration, there's no God, there's no objective morality, reality is whatever you make it, you know, speak your truth, girl, all that bullshit. And yet you exist in an eternal present moment, which is then surpassed by another eternal present. So you're trapped in eternity, essentially, every second, every minute of your life. But in that moment, you have no connection to past or future events, or even other present events that are happening around you. All that exists is the moment that you occupy and what you are doing or saying or thinking or feeling. Why do you think people are also addicted to their emotions? Because they're trapped in the present and emotions are momentary. They're temporary. They exist in the moment, then they're gone and another emotion replaces them. So you're trapped in an eternal present, but there is no eternal power. There is no eternal meaning. There is no eternal objective reality in which you exist. So therefore, you exist in an eternal present and another, and another, and another, without a God, without a creator, without a fundamental meaning to your existence. You are an accident. To me, to exist in an eternal present without a God, without a meaning, without anything other than just, you're an accident. Get what you can in this moment, because the next moment may be your last. That is my definition of hell or at the very least, purgatory. Not good enough to get to a heaven, not bad enough to get to a hell. You just exist in this limbo of gray. And in that gray, you have to make the lights go on and off, and you got to change up the colors. Diarrhea Christmas lights. And that's what we do then. We just want 30 seconds of pleasure. That's all we need. And then we'll figure it out for the next 30 seconds, and the next, and the next. And when you are asked, why are you masturbating to porn? Why are you eating something if you don't know what's in it? And why are you eating it if it doesn't even make you happy? Why are you having this conversation with this person you're in a relationship with when you don't even really like them? Why are you working at this job that makes you miserable? And you know it's just going to continue to make you miserable because every single day when you wake up, your first thought is, shit. I got to go to work again. It's because you're trapped in an eternal present without gratification, not true gratification, immediate instant gratification, a little hit, a little whippet, a little snort, a little shot, and then it's on to the next one, and then another hit, and another shot, and another snort, and another injection, and then another, and then another. But you know, you know implicitly that the next one 
isn't going to satisfy you because none of the previous ones satisfied you. And because you are against the past and you have no future and those around you are in the same boat, you have no story. And you come to hate your society, as we read, such as we're going to update this classic story for quote-unquote modern audiences or modern sensibilities. What does that mean? It means we hate our past. We hate these myths that give us a grand narrative that bind us to God and to family and to the culture and to morality and ethics and to our relationships and to our language and to our myths and to our traditions. We're going to rewrite all of it because we hate them. Why do we hate them? Because they had it and we don't. And we're like spoiled children, as I said. And we see that they have it and we don't. So we say to ourselves, well, I never really wanted it anyways. And I think it's stupid. And I think you're dumb. And if you want that, then you're lame. It's exactly what kids do to each other. It's peer pressure. And so we just shut down. We stop asking questions. We stop looking past the edge of the canvas. We stop searching for the note that's just just right up the scale, just beyond what I think is going to sound right. Just accept common public opinion, common logic. Just go along with the herd. What's that? There's a crisis. Let's focus on that. Oh, wait, another crisis. Let's focus on... Oh, wait, oh, another crisis. The ball is always being moved. The cheese is always being moved, and we are always following and chasing after the cheese. Without a narrative, without a story, without a history and the traditions that are formed within that, we have no connection to our past or our future, which, if you wanted to control a population of people and turn them into slaves, that would actually be a pretty good way to go about it. Because then you, as the state, you as the chief, you as the boss, can write history for them. You can give them a story that you have custom-designed for them. And that story involves their slavery. So I'm going to need you to drink a lot of this to numb your brain so that you're not capable of free thinking. And I'm going to need you to snort this and ingest this and inject that so that you exist in a kind of swimming pool of weightless satisfaction, never realizing that you're drowning. You ever wonder why we send people to jail for life for marijuana possession. But I know people that are, have 14 or 15 DUIs who still have their license and still drive around free. Why is it socially acceptable to destroy your life with alcohol, but not crystal meth? Why is it okay to watch internet porn, but it's not okay to cheat on your spouse? Why is it that the same people that oppose the death penalty also are in favor of abortions? We don't ask these questions. We're not allowed to ask these questions. Whether you agree or disagree, all I did was ask the question. If you got all tense right now, just at that moment when I asked those questions, they were questions. I didn't say that I was one way or the other. Obviously, I lean one way. You know that by now. But I'm just saying, I can't even ask the question. Even if it's a leading question, I still can't ask it. Because we're polarized. Why are we polarized? Is that by design? 
Are we being divided by design? Is it just easier to pick a side and then belong to something bigger than ourselves because we have the means to live but nothing to live for? Are we being manipulated because we're not capable of thought? We're not capable of free action. We're not capable of taking agency and accepting responsibility and the consequences of that? Is it possible that we are being manipulated? Oh, I think so. One of the things that I have been doing the last oh, month or so is playing around with my new toy, ChatGPT, the AI. And I think because I'm Gen X and because my entire life has been one of adoption, like I adopted Pong, I adopted the Atari, I adopted the Apple IIe, and on and on and on, adapted the iPod, adapted the MacBook, and so on. I look at ChatGPT as another tool, something to adopt and play around with and use for, well, like my bibliography for my new book. I'll be sitting there typing away and I'll think to myself, all right, this author in this book said this thing. And I know they said it, but I need the exact citation and page number. So I can go to chat and say, hey, chat, this is the quote that I remember. Where is this in this author's book? It'll give me this bibliographic citation. Boom, five seconds. So far, I'm in the fourth, third chapter of my book, fourth chapter of my book. So in four chapters, what would have taken me in the past altogether like a month worth of going through books, nailing down the quote, footnoting it and checking it, now it takes me like five seconds to do one. So in like one hour, I can save myself a month's worth of work of research. I still have to have the knowledge of those books in my head though. And going through Reddit and going through other lists and reading other people's, you know, experience with chat and how they've hacked it and how they're using it or letting it use them is my point. What I see, of course, is the seductive temptation to let it do the work for you, to think for you and to say to chat, chat, I got to write a book, but I don't want to write a book. I don't know how to write the book. So write it for me. Okay. So chat writes the book for you or the article or whatever. Great. Now what? Now I got to go out and I got to talk about this book. <laughs> and I have to do presentations on this book. I have to cite the book. I have to be familiar with the book that I supposedly wrote. But I didn't write the book, so I'm not familiar with what's in it. And I can't really lecture on it or present it in a way that makes sense. I can't answer your questions about the book because I didn't write the book. And so I have to struggle through this grand fraud that I presented. Or I can simply accept that chat is a tool and that tools can be used for both good and bad purposes. They can be manipulated for good and bad purposes. But yet it's kind of like for me anyways, it's like Pro Tools or Procreate or Adobe Illustrate when it comes to art. It's just a tool. And yes, you can let it do the work for you or you can figure out how to use the tool to accentuate and add to what you've already done and let it work for you. But of course, what we see is when people get this new toy, they basically just give over their will to the thing, to the new technology, to the machine. And they let it think for them and it, they let it tell them what to think or, or how to think versus, all right, chat, I'm writing this section and I really need four or five definitions of addiction. That's the intro to my book. And again, chat just gives me five different definitions of addiction from different 
reputable, um, well-recognized organizations. And yet I'm still saying to myself, okay, but in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a totally different definition because it was written at a different time when definitions of addiction were different. And so you know what? Let's add to these four or five definitions from the present day with definitions from throughout the 20th century. So I type that into ChatGPT and say, give me, some de- give me some references, give me some definitions. And then I read through them and I have to think about them. And here's the key point, thought. Yes, I could just cut and paste those into the bibliography, into the footnotes, and it would be fine. And nobody would probably be the wiser, but I would. And also, am I going to go and read the website or read the book or read the introduction or listen to the lecture where that person or that author, that's how they use this definition. But where are they getting their information from? That's research. That's what research is. And it's one of my favorite things in the world to do because I'm a super nerd. And especially when I was doing my postgraduate uh, thesis work, I would love going through bibliographies of books and then going and getting those books in the bibliographies. And I would go through bibliographies like breadcrumbs following the breadcrumbs. And I would get the book in the bibliography. And then I would go to the bibliography in that book. And I'd go to the book in that bibliography. And I would just keep going backwards until I got to the primary source. And then I had done my work and I saw where all the roots of the tree spread out. And I saw how the trunk was formed and why the branches grew the way they did. So that then when I presented on the chapter, I knew all of the relevant literature. I knew the different trails that led back to the source material. I knew this author's opinion versus that author's opinion, and then I could talk about it in a knowledgeable and educated way. And whether you agreed with me or not was on you, but at least I showed up prepared, and I showed up with the research in my mind, and I could handle the research in such a way and present it in such a way that you could understand it too. All of that is swept away by AI if we let the technology use us. And as I have seen countless times, I'm sure you have too, that's what we tend to do because it's the path of least resistance. It's the easy path. And yet when you don't do the work, you don't get the rewards. Which is, even if nobody ever wants to hear anything from me about my dissertation or any of the studies or research that I've done on any of the various topics I'm interested in, I'm enriched by that. And there it is. It's not enough for me to have the means to live. I need to know what I'm living for. And what I live for, I pray, is and are people and things that enrich my life. And if we're not striving for that, possibly, according to Jung and Nietzsche and others that I've read, possibly it's because we've lost meaning, because we've lost the story And the story is one of a people that stretches back thousands of years. And it's a story that involves God and redemption and falls and rebellions and cataclysms cataclysms and catastrophes and wars and rumors of wars and diseases and famines and great art and music and amazing accomplishments and innovations and brilliant minds and beautiful people. It is an elegant and beautiful and violent tapestry. And it will be so in the present and it will be so in the future until the last day. 
but it's our history. It is what makes us, us. And when we are cut off from that, we cease to be human. And when we cease to be human, depending on the degree to which we have lost our humanity, we become more and more neurotic. More and more people struggle with mental illness. More and more people are going to be anxious and depressed. More and more people are going to develop symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorders, maybe even schizophrenia. More and more, society will be defined by the insane rather than the sane because there will be fewer and fewer sane people left. That's kind of the conceit of Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche, is that the madman is the only sane one. And so as Lewis Saw says, I feel as if I've lost the continuity linking the events in my past. Instead of a series of events that are linked by continuity, my past just seems like disconnected fragments. That's Lewis Sass in uh, Mad- Madness and Mad Men. And so what's the, what's the solution, right? What's the answer that is going to fix all of our problems? Well, the glib answer is believe in God, reaffirm the family, embrace objective reality, <laughs> seek out a moral foundation that's grounded in natural law and natural arguments. That's the simple answer. Um, but as Carl Jung says, again, in practice of psychotherapy, not only Christianity with its symbols of salvation, but all religions, including the primitive with their magic rituals, are forms of psychotherapy, which treat and heal the suffering of the soul and the suffering of the body caused by the soul. And as he continues in the symbolic life, it is not a play on words when I call religion a psychotherapeutic system. It is the most elaborate system, and there is a great practical truth behind it. Basically, what he's saying is religion is a mythos, and that mythos is what is used to define reality. It's to give our lives meaning. Myth isn't a fairy tale. Myth is trying to explain and understand what is incomprehensible in a comprehensible way, such as Jesus both man and God simultaneously. Well, how can you be two things at once? That's a mythos. And it's not a fairy tale, but rather to say, I don't comprehend. I don't understand how you can be both God and man simultaneously. And the mythos says, this is how. This is how this happens. But once you re- reject mythos, you rejected how we as human beings put meat and muscle, and sinew, and tendons on the bones of reality. And so what we see then, again, is without a God, without objective reality, without a higher set of principles and values, without traditions and history and the stories that form that history, which again is a mythos, without the symbolism of those mythos, We are adrift in an eternal present, a kind of purgatory where we simply exist for the moment and for the pleasure of that moment and to escape that moment in pleasure because we all embrace the the false reality that we're an accident and that our life really has no ultimate meaning or purpose, that we're just here occupying ourselves with today or the moment. 
And that's tragic. It's brutal. It's dehumanizing. And it leads to nihilism. It leads to neuroses and mental illness. It leads to psychotic breaks. It leads to addiction. It leads to us throwing up our hands and saying to some authority figure, just tell me what to believe. Just tell me what to do and think. Just tell me what to say and where to go. Because I just, I, what's the point? What's the point? And the point is, we've all been lied to. We've all been lied to. And as a consequence, we have accepted the lie and spurned the mythos, spurned religion, spurned belief, spurned objective reality, rebelled against all of it, and assumed a reductionist, mechanistic worldview that has left us, well, less than human, less than we were created to be. And then when someone says, my son is suffering and I need your help, I need you to pray and I need you to appeal to God and I need you to demand of God that he heal my son, you can't because you don't pray, because you don't believe. And therefore, unfortunately, you have nothing to say to me that is of any comfort or consolation. Thinking of you, don't care. What does thinking help? Thinking about me? Oh, you're thinking about the fact that my son has a tumor? That does nothing. It accomplishes nothing. It helps nothing. Other than to remind me, you too are powerless to help us. You too are powerless to take responsibility for my son's ailment and his afflictions. Your thoughts are with me? I don't give a shit. Your thoughts are with me. So fucking what? Can you cure my son? Can you heal him? Do you take responsibility? No. You're just reminding me that you have no power. But I already know that. I have no power either. I am not in control. I would love to take responsibility for healing my son, but I can't. That is beyond my power. And you can say, I am deluded. And you can say that I live in a fairy tale fantasy world of gods and angels and demons and blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's certainly an option. Many have made that assertion over the years. Not just of myself, but of other believers. But just think on a practical level of how isolating and debilitating it is when you are suffering or someone you love is afflicted and you can't do anything to help them and the people around you can't either and you know it implicitly and explicitly and you cry out to nothing and no one in your pain and your grief and you demand an answer, you hope for a cure, for healing, for respite, for release, whatever it may be. But no one's listening. No one's coming. That's hopelessness. That's hell. To me, that's hell. And so I believe against my better judgment. I believe against the internal dialogue that takes place in my brain. I believe and I pray. And I assign responsibility to my creator, my son's creator, and I demand that he keep his promises to us. But those promises are recorded in an old dusty book that's thousands and thousands of years old, 66 books in all, from different times and different places written by different people. Again, 
You can say it's all nonsense. You can say it's all just fairy tales. I accept that. That argument, anyways. I don't accept it as valid, but I accept it as an argument. But again, all you're saying is really, I'm hopeless and I have nothing to believe in. And I exist in the present, and that's it. And if that's good enough for you, okay, God bless. But for myself, it's not. For my 12-year-old, it's not. Because he doesn't want to die before he's 13. He doesn't want to die before he's 23. He wants to live. Because that's what he was created for, to live. It's what you were created for, to live. Not just to enjoy the means of life that come out of a box or that are waiting for you on your screens at the end of the day. We were created to live. We were created to live in relationship with our creator. We were created to live in relationship with creation itself. And nowadays, we're not doing very good in regards to either one of those things. And I think that's why you see so much mental illness and so much neuroses. That's why you see so much violence, so much apathy and docility too. Nothing to live for, no story to tell, no mythos that connects us to anything other than what can make me happy right now? And that's a hopeless way to live, in my opinion. And if you're listening to this, maybe you think the same. And so again, ask the questions that no one else is asking. Think beyond the edge of the map. And be open to the possibility that you're not in control, you don't know everything there is to know, and that quite possibly you have been misled And then it might be worth your while to take a step back and detach yourself emotionally from your own presuppositions and start to question your prejudices and your judgments about other people and things and ask, is this really all there is? And maybe I struggle and suffer because I haven't considered other options or listened to other voices and at the very least wrestled with what they're saying. And so I guess that's kind of what this whole episode's been about. Definitely the longest episode I've ever done, wow, is just asking the question and just chewing on it. Because even if we're just doing that, even if we walk away and say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to stick with what I came into the room with, at the very least, we're changed by considering options. Maybe it's the most minuscule thing in the world, the most, the tiniest shift in our perspective, but it's still a shift. And so I ask, you once again to be open to the options, to ask the why, to walk off the map and find out what's just past the edge. Go on an adventure. Because as Jordan Peterson said in a lecture I recently listened to, adventures are good, and we find the greatest good when we're on adventures. And so I'll leave you with that. Go on an adventure, because that's good. Because the greatest goods that we discover are the goods that we discover when we are on our adventures. So with that then, I thank you as always for listening. I pray that this was helpful and inspires you to continue the conversation offline with others. And as always, Space Monkeys, I will talk to you again real soon for a brand new episode. Peace.